Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Good day, everyone. This is uh, Ed McGuire, uh, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. And we're here on site at IoT Solutions World in sunny Barcelona. Uh, and with me is the, uh, the, the grand poobah of, <laughs> of the entire event, uh, Richard Soley, who is uh, the chairman and CEO of Object Management Group, but also the, the executive director of the Industrial Internet Consortium. And I want to thank you for taking some time to my uh, pleasure to speak with us. So tell tell us a little bit about. Uh, I'd love to hear a bit about your background and and, and what had had really brought you to uh, really to start this event. Now it's uh, there are uh, many thousands of people here. But would love to get a bit of a, a, a backstory on what had. Uh, you know what? What had really brought you to um, create this amazing event in Barcelona? Uh, well, it couldn't be in a better place, first of all. But I'll, I'll come back to that. We um, started the Industrial Internet Consortium as part of the Object Management Group. The OMG itself is 29 years old. I've been with the been the com- with the company 29 years today. Just by coincidence, this is my my 29th anniversary. Wow! Uh, I've been CEO for um, um, the last 21 of those years. Um, and what we do is accelerate the adoption of various technologies. So OMG has always focused on standards, very quickly creating standards that have impact on the industry. So our first standard, which came out 28 years ago, Corpus Standard, is now on every mobile phone on the planet, every banking system, every robotic system, etc. But you know, not everything is about standards. So. When, um, when we looked at the IoT industry five years ago, we said it's not ready for standards because nobody knows what's necessary. Mm-hmm. What standards do we need to build? And the, the, you, have, you need a sandbox. You need a testbed, what, what we call now call testbed, but it's basically mm-hmm. a sandbox, a way to actually build stuff and see what you need. Uh, what are the best practices? How should you train people? How should you retrain people? How should you hire people? Um, how do you avoid uh, problems in your in your staffing? What kind of technology would have made it easier? What kind of standards and implementations of standards would have made it easier to build those test beds? Um, so we started four and a half years ago, this consortium, March of 2000, uh, 2014, with the explicit idea that we would build test beds in manufacturing and production, healthcare, uh, automotive systems, uh, other kinds of transportation systems, smart energy, smart grids, um, uh, smart buildings, smart cities, and so forth. We would actually build those systems and see what we learned. Um, so we've been doing that now for, for uh, four and a half years. We've started to publish results in the last uh, six months, approximately. Um, we had a paper, the first paper we published was called Why We Do Test Beds and has some results from our track and trace test bed run by Bosch and Homburg. We've since published four other test bed results papers on energy grids and so forth mm-hmm. in our Journal of Innovation. But you know, um, guessing what your next question is, what, what would be, uh, what we would talk about here, 
um, we've finally discovered that giving people a big pile of paper to read, a reference architecture, a vocabulary, a security architecture, a connectivity architecture, and the results from 30 test beds, they're just not going to read it. Mm -hmm. So we've announced yesterday a resource hub which makes it possible to tell us what you're looking for, what you're building, what kind of system you need. We'll find the, automatically using AI techniques the parts of our documents that are valid and, 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 uh, and have a point that have, uh, have something to do with what you're asking. We'll even go to the extent of, of uh, drafting the RFPs for you, what standards are necessary and so forth. We're also using it to work with our liaison partners so that they know what standards are required based on the, the outputs of our test beds. So, for example, we also announced uh, yesterday that the OMG is building a new standard for track and trace based on the requirements that came out of the track and trace test bed. It would have been easier to implement the supply chain parts of the test bed if there was a standard. So let's develop the standard. Um, why, this, why the event? Well, I mean, that's a great question, considering there seems to be an IoT event every other day somewhere around the world. But this one is different. Not only is it in Barcelona, which is a wonderful city to be in, not only have we partnered with FIRA Barcelona, which are fabulous partners, nobody's better, but it's an event which is focused entirely on end-user case studies. Even the keynotes are about end-users. We require it. Even the paid keynotes are required to talk about end-user case studies. And I think just as importantly, if you want to see, touch, feel, uh, smell the test beds, go to the floor. Yeah, that's where they are. Have you been there? I have. I, and I, what struck me, uh, this is the, my second year, but what really struck me uh, about the, the booths was how many uh, live machine demos there are on the floor. I think it's, um, I've been following what's, how we, what you define as IoT pretty closely for about five years now, back uh, from my Wall Street days. And it's really uh, a, a palpable change in how much uh, we're, we're actually seeing, you know, real concrete demos on, on, you know, on in vendors, in vendors booths now, not just a lot of slideware or vaporware. I think that's happening. That's one part of it. The other part is the recognition that IoT is not, in, in the usual sense, a market. Mm -hmm. What IoT is, is something that impacts agriculture and healthcare and transportation and manufacturing and production and energy grids and smart cities and smart homes and a million other things. Those markets are going to be irrevocably changed by IoT. So that's what we're showing off. That's what you see in the booths. That's what, certainly what you see on the test beds that you can touch and feel on the floor, how those markets are affected by the implementation of IoT, not just how the technology is used, but how the business models change. I mean, the obvious one, of course, is jet engines. The GE's been mm -hmm. talking about it for ages. Rolls-Royce does the same thing. Um, you, you lease an engine from those guys instead of buy it now. Um, they maintain ownership and, protect and connection to the uh, jet engine long-term, and they can maintain it better than anybody else ever could. Um, which that, that's going to be true in a million other markets. Yeah. And it's a recognition that, I mean, pardon me, but airlines don't want to own jets. They want propulsion. If it's provided by magic, they're just as happy. They want propulsion. Mm -hmm. Companies don't want to own air compressors. They want compressed air. Right. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's, it's a consumer device issue as well. 
I don't want to own a car. I just want to get from here to there. Right. The, the utility, people want the utility of the, uh, that serves their purpose or serves their interests rather than owning hard assets. And, exactly. Yeah. Or what, what Accenture calls an outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I wanted to ask a bit about the the process of, of putting standards together, and, and I'd love to get your perspective on on what it's like to develop a standard. I mean, clearly, standards have been uh, an important topic of discussion in the rise of connected industry or or, uh, or IoT. But uh, how? You know, what? What are some of the considerations? I mean, you had mentioned the you know the the, the quarter standard and, and having developed um, standards with, uh, with with object management group, but uh, you know how how is how does that differ from other uh, undertakings in you know in the technology uh, landscape, the technology world? First of all, when you do surveys and ask people what's What's impeding the adoption of IoT in your organization? They always say number one is interoperability, mm-hmm. and number two is standards. Mm-hmm. They're wrong. Number one is talent. Talent is far more important, and we're developing talent in these programs as well, of course. These are people now that have actually built IoT systems and know how to build IoT systems. That said, it's still valuable to have standards. And although IIC is not a standards organization, it is discovering what standards are necessary, and OMG very much is a standards organization, having standard, having developed about a thousand standards over the last twenty-nine years. Um, there are many different ways to develop standards. The most obvious are standards that were developed by a single vendor, backed by a single vendor. Mm-hmm. Um, so Microsoft Windows, uh, Apple iOS, and so forth. Those are those are standards. You may not like how they were achieved, but they are standards. On the other end, you have organizations like um, ISO and IEC JTC1 that um, develop standards the old-fashioned way. Everybody sits in a room, you develop a consensus, and you make sure not to standardize on anything that somebody actually has implemented because that's not fair to the other vendors. We're somewhere in the middle, OMG. OMG develops standards using a a methodology which is much faster. In fact, we've done it a thousand times, so I can tell you that it takes an average of 17 months to complete from requirements to specification. And there is at least one implementation within 12 months of that, or the standard is removed from our Mm. book of standards. And it has happened. Yes, it has. and what we do not require that the specification not actually exist, we, we, we require that it does exist. Because you want to be fair more to, the, more to the users than the vendors. There are a lot more users than there are vendors. You, there's nothing worse than a standard that, t- that takes up space in a book or on a hard disk, but nobody's ever implemented it. The iconic example is ISO COBOL. Mm-hmm. Sorry to mention something nobody likes to talk about anymore, but ISO COBOL took 11 years to develop. You know how many implementations there are? Zero. That doesn't serve anybody's uses. Oh no! Well, it's fun travel for the people in the I committee. Can, becomes these, uh, yeah, the giant, uh, the giant boondoggle. But I don't think it, it was intended as a boondoggle. Yeah. Let, me, let me be clear. Yeah. But it ended up being one. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, OMG members also travel all over the world, yeah. but we get a lot done. Well, having that 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 uh, having having a boundary to the, you know the requirement essentially that uh, it sounds like you have a have a, a 
distinct methodology to develop those standards and, and then also distinct uh, strict criteria to ensure that they, they remain active and, and, and viable. Exactly. And if they're ever not implemented anymore, then the standard goes away. It really does. We've done it three times. Only three times, but we've done it because we want to be sure that our standards actually mean something. So you're going to see quite a lot of standards in the IoT space as well. Most of the standards that are being invented for IoT now number one, not based on real test beds, unfortunately, and number two, focused on the easiest part of the problem, which is communications. I'm not saying easy, just mm -hmm. the easiest part of the problem. Right. The hardest part of the problem is semantics. Once I've got a bit from me to you, what does it mean? Mm -hmm. So and that you've got to do in each vertical market. So the track and trace one, we're focusing on manufacturing, we have other specifications and standards that we're going to do in, in healthcare and transportation and energy grid management and so forth. So the Industrial Internet Consortium does a lot of, I know they're doing a lot of work on, uh, on, on reference architectures. And I think it would be helpful uh, to provide a bit of context in terms of uh, understanding how the, how the consortium has, has come about and, and how, how you think about dividing the world or looking, you know, looking at this emerging uh, Say this Cambrian explosion of innovation as it is, right? <laughs> I mean, you, there, there, are, there are a lot of. I mean, you have to, you have to be able to uh, take a, a vertical view of uh, you know, a lot of the the technologies. But is is uh, it would be helpful to to understand how what inform the way that you you look at the world and how you how you prioritize uh, the you know the essentially the 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 projects that, that, that you're working on and, That's and, good and your question. efforts. That's a good question. Um, first of all, how it, how it started, five companies came together and realized that no one's going to win in this marketplace. Um, either everybody's going to win or nobody's going to win, but there's not going to be a single winner. There isn't going to be a, a FAGA, Facebook, Apple, Google, Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, why is that? Well, obviously, the whole point is connecting systems that never, you never, no one ever intended to be connected across boundaries across boundaries of applications, across boundaries of systems, across boundaries of countries. So the whole point is connecting different systems from different companies. So the, you're never going to see a winner. Nobody's going to win in the IoT space. I don't even know what it means. Yeah. So um, what we do is we start with the use case. Well, backing up a little bit, we, as I said, have a number of, of, of documents and our vocabulary, reference architecture, connecti connectivity framework, security framework, and so forth. Um, those are about what you have to think about to build a, for example, secure IIoT system. Um, but what's more interesting, I think, is the results of test beds. So we start with a use case. I'll give you some examples in a moment. We then build a set of uh, an ecosystem, a set of companies that have technology that will implement that use case. And then we, we do whatever edits that seem to be necessary to our reference architecture and our security framework based on that use case and how it affects those implementers. And then we build it. I mean, we really build it. We have nearly 30 very large projects worldwide. Some of them, some of them in the tens of millions of dollars, euros. And then we do our best to capture best practices, as I mentioned, not only technology best practices, but human best practices from each testbed. So an example, uh, the use cases. The track and trace testbed, our very first testbed, and the first one that's generating requirements for new standards, 
started with a very simple idea. If I knew where everything was in the factory, people, parts, work in progress, and tools, could I make the, the factory safer and more productive? I think that's kind of silly because the answer is obviously yes, but it's not so silly because you want to know how the answer is not, is, is I'm sorry, you want to know how the answer is just yes. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, safety is kind of obvious. Um, that is, you know where the robot arms are, you know where the people are, the robot arm's about to swing around and kill somebody, you can stop the robot. You know, you, that's, it's a real problem in real factories. Mm -hmm. and what, you, what they normally do is they put a robot in, in, they put robots in cages so that people don't accidentally go near them. Did you know that 90% of people hurt by robots in factories have worked in the factory for more than five years? Really? Yeah. Is and it, they, they're, and, and that they leads know better. to complacency, Exactly, right? yeah. and they know yeah. better. Um, so that's a real issue. From a productivity standpoint, can you imagine a factory where people spend half their time looking for the right tool? Those factories exist. And if the system can tell you the tool is behind you 10 meters on the left, imagine the, the, the increase in productivity. So that's what we're actually doing. You can increase productivity you, uh, with, uh, with video analytics as well. So we're looking at that. Um, but just knowing where things are, and the, the first phase of that testbed that, that Bosch runs um, uh, used Cisco wireless uh, Wi-Fi routers, triangulation of Wi-Fi routers to give them um, locations of things inside the factory within one meter. Doesn't sound like much, but at least you know it's fairly close. Um, they now do uh, five centimeter resolution in, the, in factories using uh, camera technologies. Um, so. Um, just to give you an idea of other test beds that look completely different, we have a test bed also run by um, now Dell in Southern Ireland, in County Cork. And again, the use case was trivial, or at least trivial to, to, to state. That is, if we could connect the national resources of Ireland with the county resources of County Cork, provinces are called counties in mm -hmm. Ireland, could we offer better services to the customer, that is, citizens? Simple. It's a simple, well-defined business use case that has nothing to do with technology. But if you look at the first test they ran on the test bed, it was what they called an ambulance test. It, it's a bit of a mind blower. If, you're, if an ambulance knows, uh, if the person running the ambulance knows who's being picked up, you know, you're sent to an address, that person's healthcare data is downloaded in real time from the healthcare records of the National Healthcare System of Ireland and uploaded directly to the ambulance. They now know if you're allergic, if you have Alzheimer's, if you're diabetic, mm. et cetera, et cetera, and they can do a better job treating you. Furthermore, what happens in the ambulance, if they have time, is typed in there and goes back to the hospital, and the treatment plan and stabilization can be planned ahead of time before arrival so they don't have the normal screaming and yelling at the, in the emergency ward when the ambulance arrives. We think we've saved lives, in fact. My point is it's not just about money, and the use cases are extremely varied. Mm -hmm. That no, how do you uh, how do you look at capturing uh, best practices? Because it would seem, I mean, just just in the two cases that you've described in, in the uh, in the factory and, and, and ambulances, I mean, there would there would be a, uh, a, a really a, a wealth of insights that come from 
being able to collect all this data and it, for you know for the first time, uh, is there a way that you have do you, do you have a, a a structured process to say codify the best practices or I wish or, we did yeah yeah I mean I'm not not that there necessarily is an easy way to have, take a cookie cutter approach to such different situations but um, you know how 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 do you, how do you think about uh, you know, the scenarios that, that, um, that they evolve. I'm interested in, in understanding kind of the iterative process and, and, uh, how, how you, how, what, what you, how you arrive at, at, um, uh, some of the insights that come out of, out of your experience. To date, we don't have a very structured approach to recording best practices. Um, I wish we did as a, in fact, I wish we had a best practice for recording best practices. Um, <laughs> We've talked about many different ways to do it. Uh, today, all the test beds do it themselves. Um, I've actually talked to some major professors at large universities that have some ideas about um, uh, having graduate students basically sit in on the test beds and, and give them a structured way to collect best practices. But I don't want to leave the impression that we're doing that today. We're not. Um, I don't have a very good answer to that question, unfortunately, but it's a good idea. Well, it, we're it, just starting to collect, I should say, we're just starting to collect results mm -hmm. from test beds mm -hmm. in the last six to eight months. But you brought up a really important point, which is this, the, uh, uh, the constraints of talent for uh, that are that exist in the industry whether and you know in, in our in our podcast I mean, we explored a lot of uh, uh, the conflict between operational technology and information technology sure. and sort of the need to, to train people but uh, flexibility versus robustness that's that's right and and as you you know how how do you uh, how do you envision it sort of in a, in a um, in an ideal way how uh, how the uh, the output, how what you've learned, how these test beds will help develop talent and and create uh, insights that can actually be propagated. Is there a the initial way is trivial? That is, the people that actually build the test beds as part of the test bed development project have that expertise. What you're really asking is the harder question, which is once we've collected best practices, how are they taught? And that's why I really want to work with universities because universities have methodologies for teaching, which we don't. Why, why should we recreate them, of course? Um, it's something we're thinking about now that doesn't exist yet. But eventually, we're going to have to make sure those best practices are pushed rather than pulled. Yeah. Today, they're pulled. And we're just starting to figure out what gets pulled with our resource hub announced today, literally yesterday. Wow. Yeah. Um, but once we know more about what's being pulled and what they're looking at and what the real projects look like, um, we'll understand, I hope, better how to train people or at least how to transfer that knowledge to people that know how to train people. I don't claim to be a good trainer. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's a it's a question that, that that keeps coming up, and I think in many respects it really reflects how nascent the uh, the, you know, the the discipline of, of around connected industry. I'll, I'll use the term industrial IoT really is, and you can use whatever term you like. Uh, the, the Germans use um, industry fair null. I hate that because I don't know what industry so I know it is. Yeah. Um, uh, the French use the phrase industry du futur. I hate that one because it sounds like it's always in the future. China's, China calls it China 2025. I like that term because I know exactly when it's going to succeed, mm. 2025. And the, the worst 
phrase I think of all is the one the U.S. government uses, which is cyber physical systems. I, That's I, pretty bad. Well, I asked the head of cyber physical systems at NIST, what in the world is a cyber physical system? He said, any system which is both computerized, cyber, and physical. I said, um, I think that defines all systems. It's not a very good marketing term either. No, well, it's not. We use industrial IoT for a very simple reason. There was this revolution from 1850 to 1950. It was the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. Productivity increased by a factor of four during that time, by the mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And that, that productivity increase created a large increase in consumer demand, which created jobs, thank goodness, because jobs were lost to industrialization. It happened again from 1960 to 2000. That was the Internet Revolution, which moved human connectivity to machines. And during that time, by the way, productivity went up by a factor of four. Lots of jobs were lost. I don't read newspapers anymore. I read newspapers online, but I don't read paper mm -hmm. ones. Mm -hmm. I read a lot of Kindle books, but I don't read uh, paper books, although I, I miss, I'm old enough to miss, love and miss paper books, but I can't travel with all the ones I'm reading. Um, but productivity increase means that there was a consumer demand increase and job increase at the end. I think that's going to happen again as we apply internet technology to industry, which we therefore, will therefore call the industrial internet. Simple idea. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it, it's really fascinating just you know, walking the floor here and seeing how, how many industries are, are really rethinking just fundamental processes. Uh, one, uh, what was listed, what's, Surprising to me is, in, in, in a sense, how kind of how quickly a, a, a paradigm uh, a vision can take hold. For instance, uh, the whole concept of transportation as a service, is, uh, and and the re the reality of, of how you know how close some of that technology is. Sure. Um, what are some of the uh, the, the I guess significant shifts in uh, looking at the the way that companies and, and end users, I guess the stakeholders that, that you work with, um, have, have really looked at the market over, over the last five years or so. And the, and the reason I choose that, uh, that time period is that that was when the, we got sort of the initial excitement about IoT in 2012, 2013. Some vendors were making, uh, started publicizing big forecasts of, of uh, economic value add and, and, and connected uh, connected devices, but I would love to get your perspective on, on the, really on the evolution of, uh, the, the, the practical perspective. I think despite what the wall street journal says, the average person doesn't care about IOT per se. They just want safer minds, mm -hmm. better citizen services, more productive factories, um, more productive farms and so forth. And this is just another stab at that, at, the, at that, at that, right? Mm -hmm. What's interesting about it is, it's using technology that's been around for decades. There is nothing new about IoT. What's new is the price has gone to zero, or close to it, and ubiquity and control controlling ubiquity has gone up up incredibly. So, you know, I, I bought a memory card in 1976. I'll never forget. A triple height VME card, 64 kilobytes of memory, $16,000, 64 kilobytes of memory. Now my bag, 
sitting over there has two gigabytes of memory card just in case I need it. And I think it cost me $9. Uh, processing power costs zero and is ubiquitously active, available mm -hmm. from the Google Cloud or from the Amazon Cloud or from the Salesforce Cloud or from a million other clouds. Um, and it costs not, practically nothing on a per processor per minute basis. Um, you know, I built a voice recognition system in 1981 when I was at MIT. It used the mainframe, $10 million mainframe. It's extremely expensive, did a really bad job. My phone does a much better job today. Because the compute costs nothing. That means people get excited because the technology has gotten to a point where it might be useful for something. But what it might be useful for is more interesting to think about to me anyway, the use cases are more interesting than the technology. So when I think that agriculture could be much more highly productive if the harvester knew exactly how much water each square 10 centimeters um, took in the last 20 years per year, and how much fertilizer and how much growth there was and how much rain there's been and, and so forth. Harvesters actually do that today and they can give you twice, three times, four times the productivity in the field that you, than you normally get. Uh, and it's just like what I was saying before about jet engines. I think the average farmer doesn't really care what technology does is able to perform that. Magic would be just fine. You remember what Arthur Clarke said yeah. magic is? It's indistinguishable. Any yeah. sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I think he has a point. I think people actually don't care about the technology per se. They just want the outcome. Technology vendors, though, are, tend to get enamored of uh, bright, shiny objects <laughs> early on. And, and you want them to. Yeah. That's critically important because otherwise that stuff's never going to get developed. Yeah. So I've been on both sides of that divide. And let me tell you, if, we, if nobody got excited about bright, shiny objects, nobody would ever build bright, shiny objects. So it's pretty important. Vendors, I think, do a great job of understanding what people want um, and how to implement it, how to implement it with the technology that's available. So in with with the uh, uh, the makeup of, of, of this conference, I'd be interested to get a sense of, of whether uh, I don't have much perspective because this is only the, the second show that I've been. But uh, I'm, I'm certainly seeing a theme emerge where there is there is less of a focus on uh the you know the sensors and, and sort of lower level gateways and a lot more focus at least in the rhetoric that I'm seeing and, and please correct me if, if you think you know think differently that uh, that I, I I'm seeing a lot of focus on on really business outcomes which exactly is, you go downstairs there's a room that's just talking about mobility there's a room that's just talking about healthcare there's a room that's uh, just talking about well, we don't have agriculture but you, you get the point those rooms are separated and the program is designed by vertical, not by technology. We don't, have a, we don't have a room where we talk about sensors and a room where we talk about actuators and a room where we talk about processing power. Well, frankly, that's not what people want. They want outcomes, so give them outcomes. And then and equally, we make sure that all of the speakers are talking about how it implements some particularly important use case, not what technology is cool. 
not the cooler new reference architecture. Yeah, no, that's and that's critical. I mean, the sessions that I that I've been, uh, it's a it's a really high quality uh, group of, of speakers, and and uh, I think uh, we've had um, just. I think Jesse DeMesa has, has been involved from, from Momenta in, in putting together some panels. And, and I have to say it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a different tone of a, uh, of a, of a I guess, tech-focused tech conference, uh, in, at least in the last couple of years, than, than what I've been seeing over the last several, uh, the, the first round that I used to go to. And more and more every year. You know, last year we required that the side events, uh, not the side events, but the the non-plenary events, um, focus on end users. Now we require that all of the all of the speakers um, focus on end users. I think that really works. Um, it uh, makes the diamond sponsors unhappy sometimes, but it makes the attendees to the event happy. That's what I care about. I think the fact that we center the te the the exhibit floor on test beds sends a message that the most important thing is real systems to solve real problems. Uh, it's, it's kind of hokey to say it, but the fact that there's a fire truck down there says, I don't want to care about sensors. I want to care about fire trucks. There's a, there's a, uh, a really interesting uh, presentation on shoes that echo down there the uh the shoemaker is has this ability to uh to look at someone's analyze someone's gait to create a uh a, a, a better insult perfect shoe yeah, yeah exactly yeah. yeah i mean if you look at some of the keynotes I, I didn't get to go to many of them because i've been doing things like this but for example um uh, jonathan ballon for example at intel he just had up on stage one after another end user case studies and end users talking about what what their case studies were and how the technology implemented those case studies that's what you want to know look every engineer and i, and I is one <laughs> starts with the problem of um what do i do first and a lot of what you hear answered downstairs is what you do first and it's not obvious and you're going to learn that from people who've already done it and made the mistake three or four times when they were trying. Are there are there any industries uh, that that stick out to you in at least in your experience that are, that have been uh, particularly successful in uh, in being able to demonstrate uh, the, the the potential of? Everybody asks which industry is going to adopt IoT first. I actually know it's manufacturing. Not because manufacturing is particularly susceptible to IoT, but because it was the first industry to start looking at it seriously, and I think it's the furthest along. Um, unsurprisingly, uh, about 40% of our test beds are manufacturing and production related. 40%, that's a lot. Um, I don't, th as I say, I, I think it's just as applicable to healthcare and agriculture and energy grids as it is to manufacturing. It's just the manufacturing seems to be ahead. If you look in Europe, especially like Industry 4.0 in Germany, um, Industry 4.0 is focused entirely on manufacturing and production because of the, the, the very large Mittelstand uh, um, society of small and medium enterprises that do manufacturing and production and support manufacturing and production in Germany. So I really think it's going to be manufacturing. But I will tell you oh, the other thing is the job of a taxi driver in 20 years 
is going to be to find a taxi another job. That's that was a, a really key. Uh, Oh, it's a key point and a key concern that, uh, again, you, I mean, you highlighted earlier that, you know, we've had a couple of cycles of in, where there was industrial revolution and, uh, you know, the Internet revolution where you get this creative destruction where where jobs are uh, jobs are cycled out and new ones are created. Uh, what what's your what are your sense of, of the uh there's been quite a lot of concern about technological unemployment mm -hmm. and, and uh, you have these dynamics of, ex of essentially accelerating change and, and you know, declining cost. Do you, th uh, I mean, is it your sense that the concerns, the public concerns about technologically uh, driven unemployment are see, appropriately calibrated to... I thought you were going to say overblown. Overblown? <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I, I think... I think they're not overblown. Yeah. I think the worry is perfectly reasonable. Mm -hmm. During the Industrial Revolution, hundreds of thousands of jobs, weaving, weaving jobs were lost, which is why you had the Weber and the Luddites and right. those yeah. uh, people yeah. going around destroying looms, automated looms, because they were destroying jobs. The technology won, won out in the end, and it always wins out in the end. Mm -hmm. Our job should be to figure out what the new jobs are going to be, because they're going to be new jobs. I just don't know what they are. There, when when there was only one webmaster in the world, and his name was Tim, by the way, Tim Berners-Lee, um, nobody could have guessed that the, the 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 job to own in five years would be webmaster. Um, and there are now tens of millions of webmasters worldwide. Mm -hmm. Those jobs were created out of, out of the blue. But more importantly, the increase in productivity created consumer demand, which created jobs. And I think that's going to happen again. Mm -hmm. What are those jobs? I don't know. That's why we're doing test beds. One yeah. of the reasons we're doing test beds. Learn what the jobs are. Um, and and uh, we don't, I still don't know. Yeah, we had a, uh, a panel. I was actually a moderator on, on one of the... I see your speaker. Yeah. Oh, yes. I got a, had words with doing a couple of them. And, and uh, yeah, the, the discussion was how automation and uh, artificial intelligence are, are re refactoring the jobs that are uh, the existing jobs in, in within factories, and it's it seems that there's you know there's still quite a bit of cultural resistance and, and yeah, but it's like fear and excitement. The, it's yeah. like holding back the tide. Yeah, you know, there's a great book on, that's sort of on this topic. It's called The Box, and it's a history of the of containerization. Um, it's it's uh, about how containers were funded, standardized. Um, ships, how ships and uh, and and uh, trucks and airplanes and so forth uh, started using containers. How uh, we ended up with a standardized forty-foot container and a standardized half container at twenty feet by eight by eight feet in feet, by the way, not meters. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating book, not just if you're interested in the standardization, but people tried to hold back the tide. So New York City used to be one of the, um, because of containerization, before containerization, New York City was one of the great um, uh, shipping capitals of the, of the United States. And the unions in New York City did everything they could to stop containerization, including requiring that containers be unpacked and repacked by longshoremen. Sounds a very typical uh, new... 
with the net result yeah. that people shipped into Oakland, which was yeah. not which mm-hmm. was not unionized, even right. though they still had to ship the, across the country, back across the country right. from Oakland to New York. And the net long term effect was the creation of the Elizabeth, New Jersey, uh, completely automated shipping systems. Right. Right. And uh, in, in New Jersey, therefore avoiding New York state laws and uh, and New York state um, uh, uh, unions, it's like holding back the tide. And technology is even stronger. And that's a that's that's a uh, it's great that you gave a book recommendation because that's that's actually a question that I, I ask every podcast guest. Oh really? Yeah. But- well, I strongly recommend the box. It sounds like it would be dry, but it's not. Um, and there are amazing amazing parts in it. For example. Um, the uh, the first major shipper to standardize the box and build a ship specifically for carrying containers got their money from what was then called the National City Bank, which is now called Citibank, and it was a junior uh, loan uh, junior loan officer who made the call much larger than he was allowed, but decided it was it was interesting enough. He was excoriated when he back, went back to the office for approving a loan much higher than his limit, but the, the bank decided to, uh, to back the loan anyway, and eventually Walter Riston was CEO of Citibank. That's how we got his start. That's uh, it is pretty amazing, and if you think about again, that, that's a great way to sort of circle back to the again the value of standards. Right. Which, I mean, the Romans standardized the the width of the uh, oh, the cars. such a good story. You yeah, know? you know the whole story of the Thiokol boosters and so forth. Uh, I don't know the whole thing in, in detail, but so the standard gauge for trains in the United States is four feet eight and a half inches. That is a bizarre gauge. Why is it the, the four feet eight and a half inches? And by the way, you can work it out in metric. It's not a standard. It's not a good metric right. number either. That's because that was the standard gauge after the two foot attempt in in the UK as well. And why was it four feet eight and a half inches in the UK? Well, because um, that was the first rails were, were laid on the on the flattest roads that existed in the UK, which had built which had been built by the Romans. And why were the why did the Romans? That's actually twice four feet eight and a half inches, of course, because there's uh, uh, travel in two directions. So why did the Romans choose that width? Well, that was the width of the Roman war car- chariot. And why did the Roman tar- war chariots? Why were they four feet eight and a half inches wide? Well, because that's the width of two Roman war horses yoked together. So now you know. But now move forward. The space shuttle has two thiokol boosters, or had two thiokol boosters, which were a little bit smaller than they than thiokol intended. That's what, one of the reasons they had to have that huge booster in the middle. Um, how did thiokol move those boosters to NASA's launch sites um, in California and Florida? By rail. And that meant that the boosters had to fit under all the bridges and across all of, uh, across all the bridges and so forth on the, on the rail systems of the United States. So they could not be more than four feet, eight and a half inches around. That is an amazing story. Which tells you that the mo- one of the most modern transportation systems in the world, the United States Space Shuttle, was designed partially around the width of two Roman war horses' butts. <laughs> And it tells you that 
the standards, these rails, of course, which give rise to businesses and commerce and, and communication are, are really, I mean, right now, the, the standards that are emerging today are going to be the, will be the railroads of commerce and innovation for Absolutely. centuries to come. Absolutely. And, and, you know, technology decisions are far less important than other considerations sometimes. Yeah. For example, the two newest aviation plants in the United States, one in Alabama, one in Charleston, the reason they're in those locations is because they're near water to ship things around. It's uh, it's really amazing. Well, listen, I think we're coming up to uh, up the end of our, our allotted time, Richard, and and uh, I want to thank you so much for for your insights. It's been uh, it's been fascinating. Uh, learned learned a lot, and I uh, very much appreciate uh, all the efforts that that uh, on, on that you and your team have, uh, and all all of the. Uh, all the participants have, have come together to, to create this amazing event. Mostly the team, which makes me look good. They do all the work. <laughs> and I thank you for, uh, for chairing panels and participating in panels as well, because it makes a difference to have people actually care about not only the technology, but how it's used. It's, uh, it, it, we're, we're very, I'm very passionate about it and, and, uh, you know, so is our team as well. So anyway, this has been Ed McGuire, uh, insights partner at Momenta. And we've been speaking with Richard Soley, who is, uh, has, is the, uh, CEO of the object management group and, uh, executive chairman of the, uh, industrial internet consortium, but also the, uh, really the, the driving force behind the IOT solutions world Congress here in Barcelona. And, and thank you again for your time. Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening to the Momenta intelligent edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.